Welcome to the Beyond Fitness Podcast. This is your host, Cade Howell, and I just want to say thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the show. All right, guys, so today we have another guest episode. We have Brandon DeCruz on the podcast, and I first found Brandon through my coach, who is Jeremiah Bear. Shout out to Jeremiah. Um, I first heard of Brandon on Jeremiah's podcast, and he was talking about this concept called energy flux, which is essentially just like how much energy is coming in the system versus how much energy is going out. So to simplify that a little bit more, it's like how much you're eating versus how much you're moving. And so we really did into this topic on this episode and kind of the the nuances with it and the benefits of being in a high energy flux state where you're essentially eating a lot and moving a lot. And it's such an interesting topic to me. And I, I really wanted to record this episode for a long time, specifically so I could send it to my clients and have them listen to it. So clients anyone listening to this, I know, just know that this is this is for you guys. Um, and me as well, because I wanted to really dig into this with, with Brandon. So it was a super fun conversation. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. You're going to learn a lot. There's might be parts you have to rewind a little bit because it can get a little bit more complicated at certain areas, but Brandon does a really good job at, at simplifying things. So hope you guys enjoy this episode with Brandon DeCruz, all about energy flux. How have things been going, man? Good, man. Very, very busy week to say the least. But uh, I always say being busy is a blessing, and pre- uh, pre- uh, pressure is a privilege. So I try Absolutely. to take everything one day at a time and just keep it moving and rocking. And um, I'm just blessed to be in the position I'm in. Have right you- on. Well, well, yeah, things are going well, man. We'll kind of dig right into things. And I got to say, you always have good sayings with uh, just like little things because I've listened to a ton of podcasts with specifically like you and Jeremiah, you and Jeff. Your new podcast, Chasing Clarity, you've, what are you on now? Episode six? We released, yeah, actually, it just came out a couple hours ago, episode six. Really? So yeah, I was, I was actually, starting. I was looking last night because I was, I'm always antsy for the next episode. So to any <laughs> listeners out there, Chasing Clarity, it's a super, super awesome podcast. And you just started it with Jeff just like maybe a month or so ago, right? It's been about six weeks that we've been doing this. And Jeff has been a close friend of mine for years. I've presented at, he holds a conference called the Physique Education Collective. And it's actually something that, you know, Jeremiah has come out to uh, to visit and to see me present at um, after we had done a mentorship together. And then also this year, um, it's going to be held in Nashville. And this is the third time I've been to it. But um, we're actually going to have Jeff H., you know, uh, Jeremiah come down, some of my clients, it's actually also my birthday weekend. So I'm really looking forward to, uh, to connecting with them and, um, just being able to be around like-minded individuals. Uh, I try to travel as much as possible and that has been something I haven't been able to do as much, obviously, uh, since the pandemic, but I used to once a month, I used to go to a different continuing education course or some type of seminar or expo or event, something to connect me with other people, because as I'm sure you can relate to, working online is a little bit of an isolated situation. So you have your clientele. I have my community and my cult, you know, the the culture that I've um, essentially established within the, the clients that I work with. But I always like connecting with other like-minded individuals within our space. Yeah, it's definitely, that's one thing I've noticed since transitioning from training in person to online. It's just like, you're so much more isolated and it kind of matches my personality to be honest. So I don't mind it, but it's also like, I know I need to get out there a little bit more and just like meet new people and stuff. And that's why one of the biggest reasons I love podcasting like this is because like, when would I ever have a conversation with you? Like, 
I don't know, like maybe we would, but it's, it's cool that we can hop on a podcast chat for an hour. I feel like I know you super well at this point, because I've listened to so many, so many podcasts. Cause you, you've been on, like, I think you've always mentioned, like you've been on over a hundred podcasts at this point, right? Yeah. It's actually funny that you remarked about the fact that this has allowed you to connect with people because I've been in this space for 14 years. So this has been my profession for, you know, well over a decade. And so initially, if you notice, like, even if you go back to my initial podcast, I didn't start podcasting until 2020. And the reason for that was for years, I've been coaching for nine years at this point, going on 10 years, actually, it's about to be my uh, decade anniversary of doing this. But I never really engaged in podcasts because... A, I had a fear of public speaking, so I wasn't really into, you know, getting on a Zoom and, and communicating with people. And also, you know, I was kind of like so busy and wrapped up in my own traveling and things of that sort. And I really like communicating, connecting with people in person. And as soon as COVID happened, you know, like you were just saying about being isolated, but this giving you an opportunity to connect with like-minded individuals that you might not meet in person. Like I'm over in the Northeast right now. You know, we're thousands of miles away from each other, yet we're able to connect and spend our evening together discussing things we're both passionate about. And it wasn't until, you know, the lockdown, you know, the first two weeks had went by and I always used to get requests from individuals that I had met at conferences. I'd met at seminars or had met at expos and they'd be like, dude, I'd love for you to come on my podcast. And I would kind of skate by it. You know what I mean? Like, um, and I'd be like, yo, you know, we could always do something in person. I did like a lot of YouTube footage. Um, and it wasn't until the pandemic when I realized like, wow, I'm at home working. I'm no longer able to see or connect with these individuals that I really look forward to um, seeing. Like I would have a big group of people from all over the country. We would get Airbnbs together or we would stay in hotels together. And I always use these conferences, like I'm using the PEC um, this upcoming month or, or the beginning of June to connect with people that I really appreciate that I know we're doing good things in our space, but I'm not able to see them on a frequent basis. And this platform, podcasting in general, like I said, yeah, I've done over 100 podcasts and that's been in two years. So in 2020, I set a goal. I will do at least one podcast a week. And I've continued that on since March of 2020. And it's allowed me to connect with some of the people that I consider my closest friends. So Jeff Black, who I have a podcast with and that I do a seminar series with, that was through podcasting that I met Jeff and I was able to connect with him. Jeremiah, you know, your your friend and mentor um, is someone that I've worked with as a mentee, he's been through my mentorship with one of his coaches, Andy. And um, it was through podcasting that we connected. Jeff, all these other guys within the space, Rachel Gregory, um, Brian Borstein, Aaron Stryker, all these guys, I've done multiple podcasts with because we've created a friendship and cultivated you know, this like-minded relationship where we're able to feed off each other, support one another, and then also utilize this platform to educate and help other people. Because I'll tell you, Kate, I do a lot of podcasts, man. And I'll tell you, and, and you know this very well, like it's hard for me timing wise. I'm very on like a very strict schedule, but I do these because there is so much out there, so much bad information, unfortunately. And when I was coming up, like I said, it's been 14 years that I've been in this industry and it wasn't, you know, the, there wasn't always as much readily information or readily accessible information. And now that's a good thing. And that's also a bad thing. And from a good thing perspective is like, there's so much out there, but on the bad side of things, there's so much misinformation, so much, um, mythology and all these things. And so instead of putting, you know, a lot of people use their social media platforms to put others on blast. That's really not my, that's not my MO. People ask me all the time. They'll ask me my opinions on 
this influencer or this coach or this method or, you know, carnivore diets or this, that, and the other. And I'm really, I'm super positive individual. And I would rather put out so much good information, whether it be on my own content or on podcasts that I appear on, that it makes people critically think. That's all I want you to do. I don't want to tell you how to think. I don't want to tell you what you should believe. I want the audience out there to hear good information that's both evidence-based and evidence-backed, as well as time-tested in the trenches. I've worked with over a thousand clients at this point. So I know a lot of the things that I've worked have worked for numerous. We're not talking a dozen individuals. We're not talking about a couple transformations on Instagram. We're talking about a thousand plus individuals. I've seen it work in the trenches. And so I like putting out both my experience and then backing it up with evidence and research so that people can take a step back and say, all right, let me think about what he said. Let me look into the evidence. Let's pull up the study that, that he quoted or cited and let me get a better a viewpoint for myself. And I really think, and, and a lot of the feedback that I get is that I help people be a better critical thinker. They analyze more of what they're doing as well as what other people are saying. And it allows them to make the decision instead of me saying, Hey, don't, you know, don't listen to the, um, the liver king. You know, this is one that I get questions about all the time. I don't consume any of his content because I consider that what's considered infotainment. Puts out a little bit of information, but it's more the entertainment factor. I'm more about putting out quality, evidence-based information that's going to really impact people in a positive way and then also help them. It's going to be applicable. I always say that my goal and everything that I do within this industry, from coaching to podcasting to the seminars that I present at, is to bridge the gap between research and information and application. And that's, that's honestly the thing that I respect the, the most about you so far is just like, you're so good at applying, like, you know, all the research you, you have an immense base of knowledge with the research, but then you also have like all this experience and you understand that it's not all about the research. Like we have to have a balance of what's actually realistic for people, but we also have to consider the research. And I, th I think you find a really good balance with that. And that's why I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. And that's like a huge reason why podcasts are such good places to consume information, in my opinion, is because like social media, it's turning into something where it's like, you have to make your, you know, if you make a video on, on Instagram or on TikTok or whatever, it has to be less than like 30 seconds or else like it doesn't work with the algorithm and it doesn't go out there very well. And you, you just can't get in good quality information in the matter of like 15 to 30 seconds, you know, podcasts are where people are going to come to actually learn some stuff and get really in deep in the trenches with some, some things. And that's why I'm super excited to have you on the podcast and dig into our topic, which is energy flux. And I was listening to, I think I, the first podcast I listened to on this was your podcast with Jeremiah. And it blew my mind. It was just like, it, it was something that I wanted all my clients to hear so bad. So I know I'm going to be sending this out to each client. So clients, if you're listening to this, like you're in for a, a good ride here. So first off, man, I want to dig into kind of your backstory, kind of what, what brought you up on this? Cause you mentioned you've been doing this. what do you say? 14 years, 14 years, man. Yeah. So it's, that's it's crazy, man. Yeah. yeah so, so what, what exactly like, yeah, brought you up into this and, you know, really got you into coaching and fitness in general. Yeah. So, so honestly, um, you know, like I said, I've been doing this as a profession, working full-time in some capacity of the health and fitness industry for the past 14 years. And in that time, I've literally done everything. I've been an in-person personal trainer. I've done sports nutrition research. I've formulated multiple products on the market. Um, I've written for online publications, like done articles and, and uh, created content as well as programs for guys like bodybuilding.coms, men's fitness, muscular development. So the big magazines, obviously I've been in this a while. So magazines were actually a big thing uh, back in the day, but really 
you know, I've been in the coaching space before this was even like a popular thing to do, you know, because coaching has really uh, risen over the, the last several years. And so in those years, you know, I've seen a lot of things. And the reason that I've taken the approach or that I put out the information that I do is that over the years, I've really noticed a lot of things that haven't set well with me, especially from, like I mentioned, from a misinformation perspective, because we constantly see people putting things out online. And like you said, we're in um, a society that First of all, it's instant gratification. So they want likes, they want dopamine hits, and they also want things so quick. We have a very short intention span. So I don't, you know, I put out daily content on social media and a lot of times I get feedback that it's a little bit too long or whatever it may be. And I'll send someone a podcast. Uh, and I understand that long form content is not everyone's preference, but I really do believe that there's, you can only make things as simple as they can be. And going any simpler is doing it injustice to the actual topic or to the question itself. So whenever I speak on something, I have to consider a lot of context. And the reason for that is because I haven't just worked with a dozen people or a hundred people. I've worked with over a thousand people. So I've seen people from all different walks of life. And there's so many different topics that I cover, whether it be reverse dieting or body fat overshooting or energy flux or maintaining, you know, right now, um, or I don't want to say right now, the last few years has really been a focus on maintaining a lean, healthy physique. And so I've really tried to come up with principles and I want to make this clear. It's always a principle-based perspective. You're never going to hear me spout a protocol. I'm never going to even say that word except to honestly put it down. And the reason I don't believe in protocols is because a protocol is a set and forget you know, lists of, you know, directions. It's, I take this and it's a cookie cutter approach and I apply it to everyone. And it's either you fit the model or you're not, you're not suited for it. And I don't believe coaching is about that. I always say that coaching is far beyond, goes far beyond the X's and O's of just, you know, calories and macros for nutrition and then sets and reps for training. It has to encompass a full lifestyle perspective. It needs to consider, yes, your training, your nutrition, but also your stress management, your sleep quality, your, your mental state, your cognition, all these different things, because, you know, our, um, physiology follows our psychology. So we cannot separate the two, you know, our body follows our brain and we need to take that into consideration. So really, you know, seeing what I've seen over the years in terms of who has come to me, um, and then also, you know, different perspectives in terms of um, the issues that I've encountered other people going through, whether it be new clients or people that contact me on social media, it's really made me, you know, take an approach where I try to put out as much quality information as possible. And I really try to take the mistakes that I made, you know, because I was misled, you know, like I said, early on, I've been doing this 14 years, but I've been training, you know, 16, 17 years at this point. So it's been a long time. And so within that time, I've made mistakes and I've went through everything you could think of from overshooting body fat. So gaining a ton of body fat after a fat loss phase, like almost immediately. I've been that person that has had skewed blood markers, you know, on, on my blood work. I've been that person that has suffered with insulin resistance. So a lot of the topics that I, I talk about, yes, I bring the evidence, but I'm also coming from what a lot of people forget is that, you know, I'm coming from experience because what a lot of people forget is what does evidence-based practice really mean? And it's a three-pronged approach. It's a triangle. A lot of people only think Evidence-based practice means I know what the literature says, or I know what the most recent research says. And that's a third of the equation. But evidence-based practice, and why I say that I'm evidence-informed rather than always saying that I'm evidence-based, is because, yes, the literature and the research does inform a lot of what I do or a lot of my perspective on things. I like having a scientific foundation because that's just how my brain works. I like knowing the mechanisms of action. But knowledge without application is nothing. And that's what a lot of people misconstrue or they don't understand. And that's why there's a lot of people that can go and do a nice podcast post and have a great reel or have one of those swiping you know, posts that I don't even know what to call them. And um, great information, but they only regurgitate what other people say 
or what they're able to see on a blog or through a research paper. But if you get them on the, on the camera, and I'll tell you, because I've been to more seminars than I can even tell you, uh, you speak to these individuals in person and A, they don't really know the information because they haven't applied it. And the best way to learn something is to teach it and to apply it to people in the real world. And B, they don't practice it themselves. They talk about a topic, but they've never utilized it themselves. So really what I've tried to come to is from the perspective of, I take the, the actual, what's, what's really evidence-based, which is taking the most recent literature, the body of evidence, taking the experience of me as a practitioner, as being a coach for, for you know, almost 10 years, and then also the abilities, the skills, the capabilities, and the preferences of the clientele that I work with, and really catering that approach, utilizing all three of those, those components of the triangle. And so, you know, I also come from the perspective that I'm not only a coach, you know, I've competed 15 times. I've been on the national stage for, you know, in terms of men's physique, I've been done over a hundred, uh, you know, professional photo shoots, and I've pretty much most of my life has been spent trying to push the limits of my physique and performance. So I've been there. I know what people are going through as well as what people want and what it takes to get there. So I try to combine all these things and really um, dispel as many myths as possible, but also put out as much quality information as possible. And that's really become my driving purpose and, and passion in this life. I love it, man. You, you definitely fulfill that because you do an, an awesome job with this. And I know you have kind of a, a interesting backstory that you don't, you don't share much about. Um, would you be comfortable kind of sharing a little bit about like kind of what, what specifically Absolutely. got you into this? Yeah, this is, this is always uh, interesting because I usually highlight like the, the aspects of my career, but I'm glad you asked this and put me on the spot because uh, yeah. this is something that I only recently came, came, to, you know, forward with. And it was actually by the suggestion. I want to give him a shout out. My close friend, Jeff Black, who knows me in person, we've been to events, we've traveled together. And he said, listen, Brandon, you have all this information, all this insight, but you don't talk about yourself that much. You'll talk about what you've done or what you do within your coaching, but you don't really talk about you as the person. And so really how I got into health and fitness was out of necessity, to be honest with you. Um, a lot of times I'm working with clientele that I've seen, I see them going through issues that I, you know, I engaged in myself. And honestly, how I got into this or how I even got into training was I had an eating disorder. And so with that, you know, I grew up playing very competitive sports that were weight restricted. So I did uh, mixed martial arts. I did uh, karate. I did, um, you know, long distance running. And I was always in this weight restricted mindset. I had coaching and, and I don't want to put this on them, but I was a young, impressionable, you know, uh, you know, early child into my teens. And it was always about, you have to be at this weight class because that's what made me more competitive. I had to be at a certain weight class to compete in martial arts. And then I also, the you know, the whole mentality back then was the lighter you are, the faster you're going to run. And so all times during the year, I was chronically restricted. And it was to the point where, you know, back then we didn't have my fitness pal. We had like fit day. We had a few things. And I was, I was going around the grocery store, you know, 10, 11 years old with a calorie counting book. I was looking at condiments and looking at the back of the section. And I, I had a great grasp of nutrition, but in a really diluted uh, perspective, because it was all about the calorie count of things. And I over-restricted myself and I over-exercised. So when I talk about, we're going to eat more and move more, it comes from a perspective of, I've been that you know, eat less, you know, feel like shit and, and try to do more and, and exercise more and that mentality. And it really, it messed me up um, as a child. And it ended up to the point where I, I pretty much stunted my puberty. And I went through what wasn't termed at the time, but is now known as relative energy deficiency in sport. At that time, it was only known as a female athlete triad. 
And so they didn't label it. They didn't know men went through it. And it's funny how the research has evolved. And mind you, we're talking 20 years ago. So obviously things evolve over time, but I had an eating disorder and I needed you know, help in, in multiple capacities, both from a, a psychological aspect, but also from a, a physiological aspect, because I went through uh, multiple injuries, uh, stress fractures, things of that sort, due to being at such a low energy availability status. And that's why I'm so into encouraging my clients and, and those that I speak to to fuel yourself. If you're going to do a ton of activity, that's all good. You need to fuel that activity. You can't overly restrict yourself because you're going to go through metabolic adaptations and a lot of physiological and psychological ramifications of that approach. And I experienced it myself early on. So what ended up happening was I needed to go to physical therapy. And I, I was very fortunate. I always say that very few things in life, I think, are, are by luck or, or by chance. But in this instance, I got really lucky. So I went to a physical therapy uh, clinic for a year. And it was run by a physical therapist that was a power lifter and then a chiropractor that was um, a bodybuilder. So it was two guys like that. They were really locked in on nutrition and training. So while I was rehabilitating my body, I was not only learning about actually lifting weights because up until that point, I only did calisthenics and I only trained for that sport. And there was kind of this men mentality that if I lifted weights, I would gain weight and that would be you know deleterious to my sports. So they got me lifting weights to rebuild my body, but they also put a very heavy emphasis. Now we're talking, I'm 13 years old, 14 years old. They put a very heavy emphasis on nutrition. I had to fuel my body. I had to fuel recovery. I had to make sure because they knew about my issues, but they also knew about the importance of coupling both training and nutrition. And due to that, I developed not only because there was a necessity behind it. I didn't feel well. I was out of school. You know, I was in all these type of braces as a result. You know, I was unable to do the things that I loved. I couldn't even go on like field trips with my friends because I was, I was injured and I was also in a bad state physiologically. And so having that mindset and having that experience, I realized the true benefits physically, mentally, emotionally from fueling myself and training and everything that I got out of it. And I started shifting my mindset on nutrition, on training, and it developed this passion that Honestly, it's been following my entire life. So it was out of necessity first and foremost, but I'll tell you, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, training, nutrition, my interest in those things and the issues that I went through saved my life. Because if I hadn't found these outlets for that, I don't know where I'd be. And uh, it's, it's developed into something that is my greatest passion in this life. And I've been able to help so many other people that have experienced that. So when I have people that come to me from an eating disorder background, and now I want to make this very clear, I sought help. I'm not an eating disorders um, specialist. That is not my specialty. I work with clients on improving their relationship with food, but if they have an actual pathology, they are referred out. And I always say that the first component of being a great coach is A, do no harm. But the, the second is, if it's not within your scope, refer out. And I'm never... I never have too big of an ego to say, hey, this is out of my scope of practice or out of my expertise and we need to seek further help. But I've been able to really take a more, and I hate utilizing the word holistic, but that's what many people will think when I talk about this. I take a more all-inclusive, I call it a health-centric coaching model. And it's because I'm, I'm really considering the physiological and the psychological health in every aspect of my, of my coaching, as well as for my clients. Because like I said, we can't separate psychology and physiology. We can't just look at food as fuel. And we can't just look at training. And those are the only two things we have to pay attention to. There are so many things that go into this equation into optimizing your body composition and not only looking better, but feeling better. Absolutely, man. I really appreciate you opening up about that. Cause that's something that I personally struggle with is just like talking about myself. It's just, it's hard. And I've learned that when I do open up about that, especially with clients, like I could just relate to them a lot better and they just, I, they know me a little bit more and it's super helpful that way. And I think it gives 
like your specific story gives a lot of context as to why you're so passionate about this specific topic as well, which is energy flux, which I think we can dig right into, man, because we have quite a bit to, to cover because I know you have like a, a huge knowledge base with this. So let's dig into what exactly energy flux is. Cause I know when I first heard that term, I'm like sounds, sounds kind of fancy, but I don't really know what it is, you know? So can you explain that a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. So energy flux essentially refers to our state of energy turnover in the body. So really when I'm talking about this and I'm talking about this concept, what I want you to envision, or I want you guys to grasp is that we're focusing on the relationship between the amount of calories we consume and then how many we expend through all forms of physical activity. So this is going to include both your intentional exercise and your daily movement. So it centers around the concept of pulling energy through the system. That's kind of how I like describing it. We're pulling energy in, we're putting more energy in, and then we're also moving more energy out you know, through movement, through activity. I want to make this very clear. A lot of people hear me speak about this. I always talk about it in the context of we're going to eat more and move more. So eating comes first. We got to fuel it first, that activity, and then we move more. And it's never, I, I do also want to make this clear. A lot of times people will hear about this and they'll think about cranking up training volume or, you know, doing tons of cardio. They're on the Stairmaster hours a day. No, it's, it's about incorporating more movement into your daily lifestyle. So I could make this sexy. I could tell you, listen, let's, let's eat more and exercise more. And that would be more fitting to my bodybuilders and a lot of the competitors I work with, but it's not about that. It's about incorporating daily movement into your life. And my focus with clients who I utilize this approach with is to turn high energy flux, this high energy flux principle into a lifestyle for them, which is why it centers around nutrition, training, and movement as I want to fuel their training. Uh, I want to fuel their activities of daily living, their recovery, their positive habits, and then all aspects of their life. So they live in this state of what I call abundance and have a mindset of more. So I want them to, to be like, all right, I can take on more food. I can move more. I can do more things. I can play with my kids more, you know, instead of all this less, because I really find that a lot of people are in this chronically downregulated state, both in terms of diet mindset, and then they're suffering these uh, metabolic adaptations as a result of eating less. And that also has implications onto other aspects of their life. So like I said, we cannot separate psychology and physiology. If you're constantly eating less, you have less energy throughout the day. You have less energy for your training. So more, you know, less productive training, but also what else do you have less energy for? To play with your kids. Kate, I know that you have a child and a wife, like you have less energy to play with them or to hang out with them or your mood is impacted. So I like the mindset of more. I like the mindset of abundance. And it is, you know, I call this a high energy flux lifestyle because it's not just about the movement. It's just not about the eating. It's about what else can we, can we take this mindset onto and how, what other aspects of your life can this positively benefit? And that's really what it is about for me. I love it, man. And that's something I've noticed like personally in myself is like, Cause when I first got into fitness, it was just all about do a lot of cardio, restrict food. And I, I remember like my energy levels, my mood, everything tanked. And now like, since I've gotten more experience, I'm working with Jeremiah and I've been doing this for years now. I understand that that's, that's not the approach to take. And now it's like more about, you know, keeping track of steps and making sure you're maintaining a high level of activity. You can eat more food. That means you can fuel your training performance better. You can recover from your training performance better, just more enjoyment because you get to eat more food. And I'm, I'm definitely a big food person. So I've, I've definitely seen like a, a lot of the benefits from it. So what exactly are, cause there, there's different like phases or different stages of energy flux that you can be in, right? Are there certain ones that you want to point out there? Yeah, absolutely. So, so there's many, um, there's two main ones. So the first thing that I focus on when I have a client finish a fat loss phase, or I have someone come to me who wants to maintain their weight, um, that they've lost 
is to get them back to a state of energy balance. So really what energy balance is, is we're matching their calorie intake to their calorie expenditure. And we can reach this state of energy balance in two main ways. So this is what I'll point out. We could use a low energy flux approach or a high energy flux approach. But what state that you get into and what condition you utilize or what approach that you utilize is going to be completely dependent on the amount of calories you want to consume or can consume, and then also the amount of activity that you can consistently execute on. So what can you do on a daily basis? And so in the first state, we'll look at low energy flux. And if you were in a low energy flux state, you'd be maintaining your body composition and your body weight through eating a low amount of calories coupled with low energy expenditure, meaning because you're eating lower calories, you're now burning less calories because the body's adaptive. We have to keep in mind, like it's, it's not only adaptive in a negative way in terms of when we diet, but it's also adaptive in a positive way. When we eat more, it upregulates. And so what you have to realize is that a lot of times people talk about calories in, calories out as these two independent sides of the energy balance equation, but they're actually what's called interdependent. They rely on one another. So as you manipulate one, the other changes. And that's what a lot of people don't consider. They say, all right, well, I'm going to put myself in a 500 calorie deficit through food. And that's going to make sure, you know, and all things else accounted for, that's going to make sure that I, I lose one pound a week per week, you know, endlessly. And if that was the case, we'd starve to death. We'd all be emaciated using a 500 calorie deficit. So keep in mind, just like the body adapts downward, it adapts upwards as well. So this low energy flux state is the one, it's, it's the most common situation that I encounter new clients in when they come to me, especially those with a long dieting history. And I'll tell you, I'm sure as a coach, you could relate to this. There are so many people that have such an, a rigorous dieting history. They've been with a lot of other coaches. So they've tried a lot of diets. And there was a, a study that I read a few years ago that the average female, by the time that she was in her thirties, had tried at least 16 diets. That's substantial, you know, 16 diets. And we're not talking about a week stint of dieting. These were, this was a survey data and they looked at substantial diets, eight to 12 week diets. So that's a long time spent, spent dieting. And honestly, with, with today's day and age and with the Instagram era and everyone wanting to stay lean for the gram, I'd say guys are, are pretty close behind them. And this is not just a female issue. And so, you know, why I find a lot of these people in this situation is because most have been using the, the typical eat less approach. So as their calories have continued to drop, throughout the course of dieting, every aspect of their total daily energy expenditure has dropped. So they're burning substantially less calories than they were previously. And we see in all the weight loss research that you look into, if you look at anything that has to do with uh, fat loss or um, weight loss trials, you'll see that the total amount of calories that your body burns per day declines throughout the course of losing body fat and weight due to what are called diet-induced metabolic adaptations. And this reduces both your resting metabolic rate and then also your physical activity energy expenditure. This is something your body naturally does. This is not something we can avoid completely. And it does this because it doesn't care that you want to get lean for summer. Like right now we're in May. Like there's so many people that are going to be listening to this podcast that are going to be getting ready for summer. And what you have to realize is that your body doesn't care that you want to get lean. It's not receiving a signal like, hey, it's getting hotter out. Let's get shredded. It, it's trying to conserve energy to, in order to ensure you survive. And now a lot of people focus on the metabolic rate aspect of metabolic adaptation. And this is another subject that I'm, I'm very passionate about because I've went through numerous, you know, diets more than I can, I can tell you in terms of for photo shoots and, and contest preps. And I've also dieted so many people. So I've become very uh, well-versed in the literature on this and also just from firsthand experience. And here's the thing with metabolic adaptation. Everyone always focuses on the metabolic rate and it does, you know, your resting metabolic rate will decrease as a result of losing fat, because let's think about it logically. You're a lighter, leaner individual. Your body is going to require less energy to function at rest, which is, you know, what a resting metabolic rate uh, encompasses. So it's going to require less energy just to keep the lights on, but the decrease in the amount of calories you burn per day that 
comes strictly from reductions in resting metabolic rate is minimal compared to the reductions in total daily energy expenditure that we see come from meat. And this is because our body is trying to conserve energy. So it not only downregulates how much conscious activity that you do, but also subconscious movement you engage in each day. And it also increases the efficiency of movement. So for every movement that you do, you're burning less calories. So it doesn't matter if you're taking steps, you're going on a walk, you're lifting a weight in the gym, you're, in, you're experiencing what's called increased mitochondrial efficiency, meaning your body's having to run through less ATP or less energy, aka calories, to do every single movement that you do throughout the day. So you're basically eating less, moving less, and burning less, yet this is where people start hitting weight loss stalls and will find it harder and harder to stay lean which is the exact opposite of what we want. Because really I utilize this high energy flux approach, not only to help people with fat loss, but really in the fat loss maintenance, which is an area of the industry that I think is very overlooked. And this is what I refer to as a restriction-based model of maintenance. Because in order to stay lean using this approach, you're gonna have to restrict calories long-term, which we know that is, is very, first of all, it's very difficult both physically and mentally, but also it's very um unlikely that someone's going to be able to maintain a lean physique doing this. We see the recidivism rates. It's up to 95. It's actually up to 97% of, they say diets fail. That's not really what it is. It's that the maintenance of the results that you got on the diet are no longer maintainable. And so if you take now, if we go with the opposite approach, if you were to take a high energy flux approach, you'd be able to maintain your current body composition through putting more energy into the system and being more physically active, which allows us to increase our calorie intake much higher than it was in this low flux state, because that increase in activity is, is essentially buffering the increases in food and still keeping you in energy balance. So you're able to stay lean while eating substantially more. Now, being in high energy flux is pretty much what I like to refer to as an abundance-based model of maintenance, meaning you're fueling your body more, which upregulates your metabolism. It upregulates your total daily energy expenditure so that your body burns more calories as a result. Now, the biggest difference, whether you're in a low flux or a high flux state is how active you are and how many calories you're eating per day to match your expenditure, as well as how many calories your body is capable of burning. So like I mentioned, if you're in this low flux state, you could be doing, doing a ton of activity, but if you're downregulated and your knee is suppressed, you could be doing a ton in the gym. You could be doing a ton of cardio on the treadmill, but the rest of the day, you're going to sit more, slouch more. You're going to be doing things that subconsciously downregulate your energy expenditure. So really when it comes down to it, you guys can stay lean using any either approach, but based on my experience with both myself um, and with hundreds of clients who I've been using this approach with since roughly around 2015, I had a rough idea of these principles in 2015. I started integrating them seven years ago. And then I, I have slowly and surely refined it over years as more literature has come out. But I found that utilizing the high energy of flux approach where we can eat more and fuel our bodies more is much more effective than just chronically restricting ourselves. Yeah, I agree. And like I said, I've, I've noticed it myself and with clients, the clients that I can you know, really get their step count up higher, it, it makes the biggest difference in just how much food they can actually eat, their training performance, like I said, their overall mood, like their adherence, they can eat more food and they can have a little bit more flexibility and they can still see results or maintain the results through that, you know? So within that, is that, I guess, in terms of like application, uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of us ourselves a little bit, but like in terms of application, do you do that mainly through steps or adding in cardio or increasing training volume? How exactly do you like to do that? 
So it's always going to be dependent on the clientele. So I'm going to give you a, a, you know, when I get on podcasts, it's hard because I look over the data that I have with clientele. I'm like, well, I utilize this approach with someone or this. There's always context to take into consideration. But the average person, I would suggest to utilize it through pulling the lever of steps. And the reason for that is because steps are the number one component that makes up our need. So our non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which accounts for a vast majority of the calories we burn besides arresting metabolic rate. So if you were to look at the four components of total daily energy expenditure, and we broke them down into basal metabolic rate, so that the calories needed to keep the lights on, your thermic effective feeding, your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, and your exercise activity thermogenesis, there's different amounts that each account for. So in terms of your BMR, BMR accounts for between 50 to 60% of the calories you burn per day. And, you know, often we'll hear the quote, and I say this very often, that uh, RMR, resting metabolic rate, accounts for 60%, 60 to 70. And the reason for that difference is because we're including thermic effective feeding in there. So resting metabolic rate and basal metabolic rate, a little bit different how they, they measure it in the lab. So if we, we kind of extrapolate those out, BMR accounts for 50 to 60%. Thermic effective feeding accounts for an average of 10% of the calories you burn per day. And then from there, we have another 40%, 30 to 40% that is just comprised of what's called physical activity expenditure. And that's made up of both your NEAT and your exercise activity thermogenesis. But within that, a lot of people don't realize we only burn about 5% of our total calories per day through exercise, especially intentional exercise. And the rest of that is done through NEAT. So I like pulling NEAT as a lever and I like utilizing steps because A, I find that when we do a lot of intentional cardio, there's a lot of compensatory mechanisms. So someone gets in the mindset, I have to do an hour of cardio. Then they're sitting more the rest of the day and they're actually downregulating their needs. So what they thought they were doing good or what the coach thought they were doing good prescribing cardio is getting made up for, you know, or essentially negated or erased the rest of the day. And I also find that it's just an easier way to incorporate into a lifestyle. It makes for an awareness tool. Hey, go for 10 minute walks after your meals. You know, start your day with a walk outside in the sunshine to set up your circadian rhythm to get some greenhouse effect, you know, in terms of being out in nature, lowering cortisol. And it's just a low intensity way to increase activity and also make it a part of your life. Like I work with so many people, like, you know, I always say people ask me often on, on podcasts, well, what is your target demographic in terms of a clientele or what is your niche? And I don't have one. And I don't want one because I work with everyone. I have guys that are on the Olympia level stage in terms of IFBB pros that are competitors. I have MMA fighters. And then I also have like lifestyle Lisa and, you know, Gen Pop Jim, like my lifestyle clients that I love and their parents or their busy um, business owners and things of that sort. And I like working with people from all different backgrounds because it A, allows me to continue to refine and build my skills, but it also allows me to encounter people from different backgrounds and different lifestyle circumstances. And I, I really think of coaching as problem solving. That's my primary thing. I'm here to help solve your problems and help you to find a better approach to attaining your goals in a way that you can not only get there, you know, get results, but also maintain them. So for some, it's going to be walks with their kids. Some, it's going to be taking kids to the parks. Some, it's, you know, I have one of my clients right now, he's, he's refereeing all his kids' games. So he's running up and down the court. He doesn't have to do any cardio. He's hitting 10,000 steps per day, which is the mark that we're looking for for him. And this is another thing. With energy flux, it's never a target. It's always a progression. So people always ask me, well, how many steps per day? Well, we do have literature on that. However, if I have someone come to me, they're an office worker that's working at home. You know, they're in a home office and they're doing 2000 steps per day. Although the literature points to around 8,500 steps per day for metabolic health, I'm not going to take them from 2000 to 8,500. It's going to be a stepwise progression. We don't go from zero to hundred. We go from zero to one and so on and so forth. So it's all about in a progression, just like we utilize, you know, in this industry, there's a lot of principles that we should use 
for other factors within nutrition, within training, within our lifestyle. We don't. So for instance, progressive overload, we know in the gym, we should be aiming for progressive overload or progressive overload should happen as a result of a progressive training stimulus. So your ability to lift more weights in the gym consecutively time after time is an indication that what you did previously caused a positive adaptation that allowed you to lift more weights in the gym. So it's a result of progressive training. And we wouldn't go from utilizing, you know, 225 pounds on the bench to 315 within a week or within a short period of time, but people want to crank these things up and that's a lot of mistakes. So I'm all about titration and really customizing it to the individual. So yeah, the, the number one lever or the number one way I used to in, increase energy flux is through steps, but it's also client dependent. So some are doing push-ups, some are doing squats, you know, your body weight squats. It, it all depends on, on the clientele themselves. Yeah. And you, you mentioned something in there that I kind of want to touch briefly on, which was post meal walks, which is something that I've started using myself and it's, it's super helpful. I started using it with clients and it's just a really good way to, I think kind of break up your steps throughout the day. So it's not like you have to go on this one, like 45 minute walk in earlier in the day or later in the day or whatever it is. It's a really good way to, to kind of break that up throughout the day. You can stay structured. So you don't get to the end of the day and it's like, Oh, I got, you know, another 8,000 steps to hit my target, but there's also some deeper benefits behind that as well. Like with digestion, nutrient partitioning, things like that. You want to, can you touch briefly on that? Absolutely. So I incorporate 10 minute walks, uh, post-meal walks specifically into the majority of my clientele's, um, you know, programs. And the reason for that is because utilizing, we have to consider the benefits of movement. So when it comes to post-meal walks, they help to not only improve digestion, they decrease gas, they, they decrease DOMS. So delayed onset muscle soreness, because it's increasing blood flow, but also just the movement of your leg muscles, which are some of the biggest musculature in the body. It's increasing insulin sensitivity because it decreases, um, the area under the curve in terms of insulin and also blood sugar. So it's helping you manage your blood sugar in a much better capacity because, you know, what ends up happening is a lot of times we have people that are insulin resistant and that's because their body has to over secrete insulin to be able to shuttle glucose, shuttle carbohydrates into muscle cells. But an increase, anytime you increase activity levels, especially through walking, it's going to make for better insulin sensitivity and better partitioning of nutrients. And this is mainly through, um, due to the fact that movement increases what's called glute four translocation. So GLU4 translocators uh, are usually insulin dependent, meaning they translocate to the cell to bring in nutrients when your body secretes insulin. But even when we, when we just move, even just through walking and putting our legs through movement, we activate an insulin independent translocation of GLUT4 transporters, meaning that we can pull glucose into our muscle without the need for insulin, which thus increases insulin sensitivity because it lowers our body's need to produce high levels of insulin to absorb nutrients. So even just going out for a walk, you know, within an hour of having a meal, we see that it has lower, it lowers the um, insulin values as well as blood sugar values post meal. So specifically utilizing it then is a really good way to help with metabolic health. Mm, that's interesting. And it, does it have to be like at least 10, 10 minutes? Is that kind of a threshold that you got to get at least 10 minutes? Or is it like you could go on a five minute walk and get a lot of the benefits? What are your thoughts there? So here's the thing. I believe that you can get a benefit from anything in terms yeah. of just a little bit is going to give you something's better than nothing. And I always want to have this mentality because a lot of times within nutrition, within training, there's this all or nothing mentality. It's black and white. It's you do this or you don't do this. You only, you train with at least 10 to 20 sets per week, or you don't get hypertrophy. And really when we look into the literature, that's not the case. We see about 69% of gains are made between one to four sets per week. There's another, um, you know, variable from five to nine. And then from 10 on it's optimizing, you know, for sets per week. 
But a lot of times, you know, in research, they can't test one minute, five minutes, 10 minutes. So most of the literature is on 10 minute walks. So, you know, the one research study that I know that has been utilized you, uh, doing this is three 10 minute walks compared to one 30 minute walk. And the three 10 minute walks were done, uh, done post meal. And they were shown to be as twice as effective as metformin, which is the number one type two diabetes medication for controlling blood glucose. So that's, that's one factor. Yeah, no, it's, it's incredible. So like, you know, often I'll, I'll talk on podcasts or I'll make posts and I'll say movement is medicine. I'm not saying we're trying to replace the pharmaceutical industry, but there are a lot of interventions, lifestyle interventions that can really help to displace a lot of poor habits within someone's lifestyle or to just improve what you're doing to optimize what you're doing. But we also have other literature that just looks at standing and they showed that um, when individuals, and now mind you, this is a little bit different of a context, they utilized standing desks and it was standing throughout the whole day, but they also did controlled feedings within that. So they gave um, two groups, they had one seat, seated uh, for eight hours during a workday and one standing at a standing desk. Now standing is not a very energy intensive activity, but you're still having, you're carrying a load. You still have gravity pulling down and you have to carry your body weight. So you're, you're uh, legs are still active. Now, are they as active as a 10 minute walk? No, but over the time course, think about it. If you're standing for 60 minutes, it's probably equivalent to about a 10 minute walk. And what they showed in type two diabetics was there was about a 20% reduction in insulin uh, needed to handle the same nutrients as compared to when they did them in the crossover and they put that group and they had them seated. So they saw, you know, a 20% reduction as compared to being seated. So I think anything, if you guys can just get up and do something, you know, even clean your house, sometimes I'll, I'll tell, you know, my, um, my wife, you know, not wives, my, my, moms that I work with, hey, listen, if you you know have lunch with your kids, just clean up the kitchen like after for 10 minutes, it's moving, you know, wash the dishes, do something like instead of offsetting that to, you know, utilizing a dishwasher or to not gardening or paying someone else to do it. If you just do a, a little quick activity, it doesn't directly have to be a walk. I just think a walk is, I, I really, I'm big into what's called habit stacking, which comes from James Clear. And if you can, the best way to ingrain a habit is to take one that you current, you know, attach a new habit to something that you currently do. So we all eat. That's part of our culture. It's one of the only things we all do. So if you eat a meal, just go out for a 10 minute walk. You can walk right outside your door. You can do it at a restaurant, anywhere you are. I do this all the time where I literally just pick up, you know, I put my plate in the, in the, um, in the sink and I just walk outside my front door and I can do it in any weather. doesn't matter. Sounds just not, like me. <laughs> yeah. If not, you know, I could, I could clean around my house or do an errand, but it's something super, super easy. It's very it's not time consuming. It's something that we can all do. And I even have people that they're not really into the training aspect. I, I work with a lot of people that have metabolic health conditions, diabetes, type two diabetes, things like that, uh, metabolic syndrome. And so these are things that we can easily attach. They have very little time. They only train three days a week, but everyone has time for a 10 minute walk. So yes, I suggest a 10 minute walk, but if you're not, if you can't do that, if you're in office, stand for a, a, you know, a good percentage of time, anything's better than nothing. But if you really want to optimize that insulin sensitivity and, and um, blood sugar management perspective or aspect of this type of approach, yes, you're going to want to go on a walk. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, that habit stacking that you mentioned is it's huge because uh, before, like before I started utilizing post-meal walks, it was like, I would just try to get my steps in throughout the day. And it was just like, I, I ran into so many times where it was like nine o'clock and I'm trying to get ready for bed. And I'm like, oh, I got another 2000 steps. I got to like pace around the house a little bit for, you know, like 15 minutes or something. And since I started using that approach, it's just easy. It's just, it's just part of my routine. It's like brushing my teeth, you know, right after a meal, I just go for a, a quick little walk, you know, and it's like, Absolutely. we live right next to a park and it makes it super easy. So that's a huge thing that I learned. I think I, I took that away from a podcast, uh, uh, with you and Jeremiah. So I like that a lot, man. That was something I wanted to touch on. So 
besides all this, is there any other benefits to uh, utilizing like a higher energy flux state? with your clients? And there, there is a ton. So I like to break this up into categories, um, really to break it down and make it more concise for people to envision. And so, you know, I look through some of your content and stuff. I know that you focus a lot on fat loss, fat loss maintenance. And so I know Jeremiah's audience is very similar. So I like to break this out. So people really see what's most fitting for them. So the first one, you know, that I find to be extremely beneficial is to help with fat loss. And then also not only with the results in terms of getting fat loss results, but also keeping them off. Because like I mentioned, Diets don't fail. Diets work. You know, we know a calorie deficit works. It's the maintenance of those results that so many people struggle with. So when it comes to losing body fat, high levels of physical activity help to make for up for the reductions in energy expenditure that come from decreased meat levels during a diet. And I find that many dieters get so caught up in their metabolism slowing during a diet that they completely neglect what's going on with their meat, which is why I'm such a proponent of steps. And that's why I really utilize steps as a way to increase energy flux rather than other methods. And the thing is that, you know, the thing that many don't realize is that meat accounts for up to 85 to 90% of the reductions in energy expenditure that we see with metabolic adaptation. So, you know, I'm going to break down a study for you guys. So you really see and, and really get um, a better, you know, vision or a better um, idea of how substantial need is because often I speak about these topics and people say, oh yeah, steps and, you know, but what you don't really realize is there's so much subconscious activity, fidgeting, blinking, like Kate, I'll tell you, um, I do a lot of presentations, especially pre-pandemic. And so I was presenting at uh, bodybuilding.com one year and I was in a dieting phase. I was in a contest prep and they videotaped me. And now I have numerous videos that I've done over the years. I've done presentations on nutrition, supplementation, training. And during that particular um, presentation on video, you could tell I'm blinking slow. Now that's not something that I can control. I'm not, you, you could see me, I'm lively. I speak with my hands a lot. I move around. When I present, ask Jeremiah or anyone that's seen me at my presentations, I'm pacing back and forth. I'm just a high energy person, A, because that's my personality, but also because I put a lot of energy into the system. I utilize this. I don't just you know, preach it. I practice. So, you know, when we look at me, these are aspects people always say, well, I maintain my, my step count. That might not be enough because you might be sitting more. You might be slouching more. You might be not maintaining your posture as well. You might be twi uh, twitching less. You might be fidgeting less. And those are things that no one's going to, unless you videotape yourself, like I had in this particular instance, it was actually a friend that kind of called my attention to it. He said, man, you, you kind of seemed off in that presentation. And I thought it might be like cog cognitively, um, but he was like, you just didn't seem as lively. And when I looked at it, I was kind of like, you know, standing straight up and I wasn't moving. I wasn't like controlling the audience. I wasn't, you know, um, owning the room. And was this and right before uh, a contest or a photo shoot or something? It was, yeah, had... it was right before a contest. So I was downregulated, man. But in my yeah. mind, I'm saying, well, I, I get my steps. Like I know I'm active. I'm hitting, you know, at the time I think it was 15,000 steps per day, but I didn't realize all the calories that could be lost. And that's what really piqued my interest because I started noticing things. And I've noticed this with clients that we're hitting, we're doing everything right. The calorie intake is, is accounted for. Um, the energy expenditure in our minds are accounted for. We're hitting our steps. We're training hard. But then you start noticing stalls in weight loss and you're like, I'm having to get to a calorie intake that's pretty low. And what's going on? It's because there's so many reductions in meat, which is what sparked my interest. So in 2008, Rosenbaum did a study looking at how much of a reduction in total daily energy expenditure dieters who had lost at least 10% of their body weight sustained and he saw a 500 calorie reduction in the amount of calories they were burning per day. So imagine if you were in a 500 calorie deficit, that just got erased, you know, completely. So they saw 500 calories. But the interesting part of the study, and that would really pique my interest, was that 
not only did they look at total uh, daily energy expenditure, but they looked at the components of total daily energy expenditure. So they looked at their BMR, they looked at their uh, thermic effective heating, they looked at um, their meat levels and their exercise activity thermogenesis. And in this case, they weren't doing any exercise. So they were able to control for that. So anything that was done in terms of the physical activity expenditure was just through meat. And you know, he found that for those who had lost 10% of their body weight, they saw about a hundred calorie reduction in just the resting metabolic rate. So out of that 500 calories, a hundred calories of those came just from the resting metabolic rate, which is not substantial at all. That's a very small percentage. However, when he analyzed the rest of the components that contributed to this large de you know, degree of metabolic adaptation, he found that their NEAT levels had decreased by about 400 calories per day. And we see, you know, that's that's one research study. We see in the vast majority of research that fat loss, you know, on fat loss, that shows that, like I mentioned, 85 to 90% of the down regulations and energy expenditure we experience when dieting come from decreases in need because fat loss phases and dieting in general generally causes us to subconsciously downregulate our activity levels, sit more, slouch more, and then we compensate more. And this is why increasing energy flux through increasing movement um, is so beneficial because, you know, none of us can or even should try to stay in a deficit at all times to maintain a lean, healthy physique. Because being in deficit year round is not a healthy approach, nor is it something that's even sustainable. So if you don't offset this down regulation and need that comes with dieting, you're not going to be able to maintain your fat loss results without constantly being in the state of chronic, you know, calorie restriction. And we also see in research that those who maintain high levels of physical activity have lower body fat percentages. So, you know, this is one of my favorite studies. I always, always talk about this. I'm sure, Katie, that you've heard this, but I don't think your audience has. You know, there was a study done on the Amish uh, by Bassett et al. And this is something that really hits home because I grew up in an area that was near Amish country. But for those that aren't familiar, uh, the Amish are pretty much an agricultural farming community. And they don't live by the norms of our modern society. So, you know, they don't, you know, utilize you know, they utilize horse and buggy. They don't use cars. They do most of their tasks and activities by hand. And they don't rely on like the conveniences that we do. They don't use washers and dryers. They don't utilize, you know, technology or TVs or anything of that. So they have a much more active lifestyle than the average American. And their all their work is done it's manual labor. So they're construction workers or they're manual laborers or they're, um, you know, blacksmiths and things of that sort. And the women are housemakers. And in this study, they decided to do an observational study and seeing how their activities of daily living impacted their metabolic health. And so what researchers did was they went out to an Amish community and they provided them with both pedometers and activity questionnaires. And they wanted to see what correlated with one another. What were they doing throughout the course of the day and what type of step count did they maintain? And when they looked at, you know, they looked at these things, they saw that the men were averaging around 20,000 steps per day, and the females were averaging about 15,000 steps per day. And that was Monday through Saturday. And then on Sunday was their only day off from work, and they averaged about 10,000 steps per day. So they're very physically active. I think in total throughout the course of the week, the males averaged around 18,000 steps per day, and the females were around 13,000 steps per day, but it's high levels of physical activity. But here's the thing. When they actually looked at the body fat percentages of these individuals, they found that the males had an average body fat percentage of 9.4%, and they had a 0% prevalence of obesity. So keep that in mind. Like In America, we're trending up to 70% of obesity, and we even have statistics that show that 92% of Americans today have some type of metabolic health condition, meaning they have one characteristic of metabolic syndrome, whether that be high blood glucose, high blood pressure, high triglycerides, uh, uh, elevated uh, or a larger waist circumference, any of these markers that show that their metabolic health is declining. 
And then when they looked at the females, they had an average body fat percentage of 25% with a 9% prevalence of obesity. So in both cases, these individuals were extremely lean. They were extremely metabolically healthy and they were so much in such a better position than those in America. So a lot of times in, when I brought up this study initially, people would say, well, we don't know what they're eating, but they do. So they, they looked into their diets and here's the thing, like these people, you know, the Amish, those in the Amish community are li literally living, they're a walking representation of a high energy flux lifestyle. You know, they don't do any intentional exercise, but they're super active. So we have to keep in mind that when I talk about, you know, their diet, they're not intentionally restricting calories. They're just going throughout their day-to-day -day life. So when they surveyed them and they saw what they're eating per day, the males were averaging 3,600 calories per day and the females were averaging over 2,000 calories per day, but maintaining that low level of body fat. And here's the thing, like they make everything at home. So they're not eating processed foods, but they have a diet that's both high in refined sugars and in, in fat. So it's not like they're eating like a super clean diet, but the fact that they're moving more and eating more, they're able to maintain a very great state of metabolic health as well as body fat percentage. So they're a walking representation of just incorporating this as a lifestyle. Like I said, they're not guys like us. They're not coaches or they're not clientele that actually have a you know, set physique goal, which they're aiming for. They're just living their day-to-day -day lives and you know, you know, benefiting as a result of it. So from a fat loss perspective, high energy flux, like high levels of physical activity, extremely beneficial. But also when it comes to fat loss maintenance, this is the biggest problem that we have in society. And when it comes to maintaining weight loss, engaging in high levels of physical activity on a daily basis is one of the number one characteristics of those who have lost a significant amount of weight and kept it off successfully for a year or more. So we actually have, there was a recent study, but um, I believe his name is Orsten uh, Dorf. And this was just a few years ago. He looked at the physical activity levels and total daily energy expenditure and weight loss maintainers. And when looking at those who had lost an average of 30 pounds and kept it off for at least a year, now keep in mind, if we look at fat loss statistics inside of one year, generally between 70 and 80% of individuals have gained back every pound that they lost. So these, these guys are outliers. They're one of the, the few 20 to 30% that have kept off a substantial amount of weight loss. For those in this group that had kept off that 30 pound weight loss, which is significant, they were averaging over 12,100 uh, 12, steps per day. And it was due to this increase in physical activity that they had, you know, when they looked at the physical, you know, the weight loss maintainers as compared to those that didn't maintain their weight, those in the weight loss maintainer group had a total daily energy expenditure that was 300 calories higher than those who weren't maintaining their body weight. And this is why they were able to eat more, yet they were able to maintain their weight. Whereas those in the group that didn't maintain their weight, they were eating more, but they weren't burning more. So they were regaining weight. And the researchers also examined what factors correlated most with the differences they saw in the total daily energy expenditure between groups and directly saw a strong correlation in the weight loss maintainers between the individual step count and the amount of calories they burn per day, which is why they were able to eat more and still maintain significant weight loss. And so that's one individual study, but we also have, you know, are you familiar with the National Weight uh, Control Registry? Mm, I don't think okay. so. Okay, so National Weight Control Registry is probably the best data we have on what are called successful dieters. So these are people that have lost a significant amount of weight loss. The average, it's you have to have a loss and kept off at least 30 pounds for more than a year, but the average person in that database, and it's all American based, has kept off, I believe it's 30 kilograms. So it's 66 pounds and have kept it off for three or more years. So these are like, you know, they say success leaves clues. And these are the individuals that we can look to. And there's a list of characteristics that they, um, do on a daily basis. So for instance, like um, 
78% of them eat breakfast daily. So they have a consistent meal pattern. And there's, there's all these characteristics that go with them, but the number one strongest um, characteristic between all of them, one of the most common traits is that they have high amounts of daily physical activity. And those who have lost a significant amount of weight and have kept it off for multiple years, average over 2,500 calories burned through movement uh, or through physical activity, which comes out to a little over 12K steps per day. So we're seeing this 12K pop up again and again for weight loss maintenance. And so it's really important to pay attention to your movement, in, especially after a fat loss phase, because when we lose a substantial amount of body fat, our body increase, you know, our, our body has this increased drive to eat. We have this biological response. So actually in research, it's shown that for every kilogram that you lose, you get about a hundred calorie increase in appetite. That doesn't mean you have to eat hundred calories, but in research, Kevin Hall has done this study. He shows that the biological drive to eat is about hundred calories more. So if you lose 10 kilograms, you know, you might have an increase of you know, and that's 22 pounds for us Americans, you might have a biological increase internally to eat a thousand more calories. But what happens with that? You know, if you eat those thousand more calories, are you going to maintain your fat loss results? Probably not. And so the main reason why so many people regain all that they've lost and more after a diet is because they get overwhelmed by hunger and their energy intake massively exceeds their energy expenditure. So just by increasing physical activity, it's a better way to both be able to satiate, you know, your increase in hunger because you'll be able to eat more, but you're also going to be able to buffer against the weight gain that comes with increasing calories. Yeah. I think where you touched on, what did you say? The metabolism downregulation, it's like 85 to 90% from no. NEAT. Yeah. So any metabolic adaptation that we see 85 to 90%. On average, it's up to comes 85 from, to 90% comes from meat. And then the yeah. rest would come from mostly your resting metabolic rate. But like in that study, for instance, with um, Rosenbaum, he showed 100 out of 500 calories came from resting metabolic rate. So 20% mm. came from that and 80%. So 400 calories came from meat. And these were not intentionally, you know, people didn't intentionally just start sitting more. They were doing their normal activities of daily living, but they were so downregulated. And that's where increasing meat during a fat loss phase or having a higher level of physical activity if you're someone that's only getting 6,000 steps per day and you go into a fat loss phase, if you only maintain that, you might struggle. For, you know, We see a lot of people hit plateaus in weight loss and they wonder like, I can't eat any less or whatever it may be. And so it's that's where titrating up activity can really be helpful in offsetting those reductions in meat because they do account for such a substantial proportion of the calories that we lose per day. Yeah. I think that's a huge understanding that people need to have is like your metabolism doesn't down regulate a, a lot of it is coming from your overall activity levels. And that that's something that once I understood that I was like, okay, yeah, like there are some metabolic down regulations, but a big chunk of that is coming from just your overall activity, subconscious or consciously, you're just moving less. And that, that, that takes up a huge chunk of that. So, um, here, man, I know we're kind of running low on time. How are you doing on time? I got a good, like 15 more minutes. Okay. You think we can bust through this or is this something we want to record? Yeah, let's do it, Okay. Let's, let's, let's get let's it. Do a little more. Okay. Perfect. So as far as the other advantages beyond just like helping to lose fat and keep it off, are there other things within that? Absolutely, man. So we have some physical benefits and this is more like on the training aspect. So increasing our state of energy flux by both increasing calorie intake and calorie output 
helps us to increase our aerobic fitness, which has a ton of physical benefits in terms of our training performance and recovery, which then allows us to improve our body composition. So just think about it. Eating more and moving more is going to help our work capacity. And it's also going to help your volume tolerance, meaning you're going to be able to do and handle more volume over time and handle higher workloads. So we know that volume is one of the key drivers of hypertrophy. We know mechanical tension is, but volume is pretty much the dial on that mechanical tension. So you know, a big thing with this is that it allows for better recovery, both in between sets. So you're going to have better aerobic metabolism. You're going to have better aerobic fitness to recover in between the sets of your workouts. You're going to be less out of breath. You're going to be able to go back and, and really execute with a better um, relative intensity. You're going to be able to hit your RRs or your RPs a lot more um, with a lot more efficiency, but also it's going to make sure that you're not only able to train harder and longer, but you're also able to recover from that training which will allow us to adapt better to our training and then gain muscle and strength as a result of this. So it's, we have to realize training is only the stimulus. It's only part of the equation. It's all about, you know, you can only adapt to what you can recover from. So you can put all the training you want, but if you're not able to sufficiently recover from that training, it's going to limit your ability to adapt and thus supercompensate and actually gain muscle and gain strength. So, you know, this allows us by eating more and moving more, our recovery capacity is improved in multiple components because you're increasing blood flow um, because walking is going to help to increase nutrient delivery, improve recovery, decrease DOMS. And it's also increased, going to increase your cardiovascular fitness. So from like a health, a physical health perspective, you're going to be able to be more active outside of the gym. So this is a huge thing for like my parents. You know, I have a lot of guys that they're, they're big into the gym, but they didn't have great aerobic fitness or, or moms that were getting out of breath, chasing their kids around, around the park, like stuff like that. It's, I don't want to just improve what they do inside the gym. This is, like I say, this is a lifestyle. This isn't only about what you do inside the gym. It's also what you do outside the gym because Kate, I'm sure you can relate to me. Like we probably, we're probably more into fitness than most of our clients, to be honest. I always try to take the perspective, 100%. like, listen, I have to think about my baseline client, but the average client that I work with is in the gym one hour per day, four to five times per week. But out of that, say in a course of a day, they're in the gym one hour a day. They sleep, if ideally, if I could get all my clients to sleep eight hours, would be a godsend. Not yeah. saying that they all do that, but ideally, let's say eight hours, just as a figure. So that's nine hours every day, it's checked off. Well, out of that, we have 15 more hours throughout the day. So you have 15 times more activity outside of the gym than you do inside the gym. 15 times more time inside the gym or outside the gym than inside the gym. And that's really where we have to utilize our nutrition, our lifestyle, our movement, our habits to really manipulate our body composition because that's going to be the key driver. It's not just what you do in the gym. It's also what you do outside the gym that's going to influence the results that you give, you get inside the gym in terms of your training performance, but also within your body composition. So I want people to be able to live a more active lifestyle. And I always say like, when you improve one thing, everything else improves. And when you improve everything, everything improves. So if we improve your aerobic fitness, we improve your mindset, we improve your energy availability status, it's going to help benefit. It's going to increase all these other capacities where you're able to um, live a better life, feel better, look better. It's going to have so many downstream effects. And that's why, you know, a big thing to me, you know, I always see within my coaching, one of the key models is a healthy body is a responsive body. And that's because I found that the healthier that I can get a client compared to where they were when they first came to me, the better they adapt and respond and the better results we get over the long terms, which is one of the main reasons that I utilize this, this approach, because the high energy flux lifestyle isn't just about looking good and performing well. It's also about feeling good and improving a client's overall health and their life. No, I like it, man. That's, <clears throat> that's a huge piece that I think can get overlooked quite a bit is like, 
I just want to get jacked. I want to be shredded, you know, but a lot of people forget like the, the overall health aspect and that they, they go hand in hand, you know, like you, you really need to make sure your health is in a good spot. Cause like you say, a healthy body is a responsive body. I've heard you say that a million times and it's, it's so, so dang true. So absolutely, man. I like that. As far as other benefits, um, like metabolic health benefits, you want to touch on anything there? Yeah. So like we mentioned previously, a big metabolic health benefit that I really utilize this for is improving insulin sensitivity and uh, decreasing blood sugar. So I track both fasted and postprandial uh, blood glucose with many of my clients. I obviously do through blood work, fasting insulin, HbA1c, uh, and markers like that. So I'm seeing the um, substantial decreases in these markers when I go from taking them from a low flux state to a high flux state. Because think about it like this, the more muscle you have and the more you move it, the better metabolic health you have. Because movement is the best buffer for glucose as muscles are essentially like a sink for glucose. So the more you move and the more you use your muscles, whether it's a walk or whether it's in the gym, the more sugar your muscles are going to soak up and dispose of. So it's, we're, we're like I'm saying, when we pull energy through the system, I'm, I'm taking in calories and we're burning, we're, we're churning and burning. So that's one of the main metabolic benefits, but it also has positive health effects. Like it's going to improve your, your blood pressure and it's going to lower your resting heart rate. And it's also going to help your stress, which is huge, especially in, in terms of lowering blood pressure and resting heart rate. These are both huge, you know, being sympathetically dominant. So being in a fight or flight state are big drivers of increasing those mortality markers. And so a big thing, one of the reasons I really like steps and specifically walking is walking is one of the only activities that lowers your cortisol. So it's one of the only physical activities we can do, because if you do hit training, for instance, people ask me, well, do you incorporate hit? Well, first of all, when we look at meta-analysis comparing hit to steady state, we see no benefits in terms of energy expenditure, nor do we see benefits in terms of fat loss. But we do see increased um, you know, catecholamine production, meaning stress hormone production from hit. It's also an anaerobic activity, so it's burning through more glucose predominantly rather than fat, which is what you know aerobic activity or walks would be burning through. And so you're, you're kind of depleting muscle glycogen. So it's going to be a little bit counteractive for your training, but it's also increasing stress hormones like cortisol. So it's, it's more stressful. It's putting you more in a sympathetic state, whereas walking is the exact opposite. It's keeping you at this low level of activity. It's decreasing cortisol, especially if you do it outside, it's putting you in more of a parasympathetic rest and digest state, which is why I really like doing these post-meal walks. And then also if I have someone with digestive issues, I'll often have them do a walk pre-meal, just calm themselves down. Hey, go for a five minute walk, separate yourself from your computer. You're in this, this locked in sympathetic state. I want you to take five minutes, go out in nature. We see that there's a greenhouse effect to walking out inside in nature and just being around shrubbery or greenery, getting some sunlight exposure, setting up your circadian rhythm and just de detaching yourself from, you know, all the modern you know, stresses that we have from email to text message, mm -hmm. to notifications, just recenter yourself. And, you know, I, I like to improve what I call their, their eating hygiene, you know, their meal hygiene. We talk about sleep hygiene. We talk about all these things that precede things that we do our, our dental hygiene, but a lot of people don't talk about how do they approach the meal? Are they in a stress state? Are they eating at their desk? You know, are they eating in an environment that's toxic to them? You know what I mean? So absolutely mindful eating. So just going for a walk, decompressing, it's got huge benefits for that, but it's also going to, you know, Walking is also going to increase insulin sensitivity because like I mentioned before, it's going to increase that glute 4 translocation and it's going to increase metabolic flexibility in that process. So like I said, I like utilizing low intensity walks or low intensity activities to increase energy flux because we already do a lot of anaerobic activities. I have a ton of people that come to me, they're smashing themselves in the gym. Like I never have to worry about that, but they don't do enough uh, sympathetic activities to balance themselves out. It's all, they're all uh, gas and they're no break. So it's like putting in walks it's going to be something that's not energy intensive. It doesn't 
you know, cut into the recovery debt. If anything, it's gonna increase the recovery. And it also helps with metabolic flexibility, which is their ability to switch between utilizing carbs and fats as a fuel source, you know, based on what type of activity they're doing. So when they're doing low intensity walks, their body's oxidizing body fat. They're getting better at fat burning, essentially. Whereas when we're doing training, like high intensity activities, like resistance training or like hit cardio or like sprints, that's an anaerobic activity. So we're burning through glucose as our main source or glycogen as our main source of fuel. So we want to be able to utilize both when it's necessary. So when you don't have to be running through your glycogen storage, utilize fat and become more efficient at that. So you could switch back and forth between the two. And then beyond like the metabolic benefits, there's also adherence benefits. And I think this is important because a lot of us get so centered on, you know, what can this do for my body or what can this do for my client's body composition that we forget that a plan is only as good as it can be adhered to and as it can be followed. I can give you the optimal diet. I can give you the optimal training plan, but if you cannot follow it and you can't stay consistent on it from day-to-day -day basis, you're never going to get results because fitness and improving your body composition is all about the law of repeated efforts. So it's what we do consistently. Now, you know, consistency will beat out intensity 10 out of 10 times. So if you can only do a program for a day or two, and that's why I really like utilizing walks and breaking these things up and utilizing steps because then it's not as overwhelming. I'm not telling you, Hey, you have to do 60 minutes on a Stairmaster every morning and night. Because that's going to easily go by the wayside. The minute that you have something come up in your day, you wake up late, your kids, you know, get sick. That's going to be the first thing that you cut out. The first thing you're going to be like, I don't need to do that. Or I can't do that. I can't fit that into my day is that cardio session that you have to get ready for. And you have to go to the gym and, and you dread. And so incorporating it into your day, you can literally, like I said, habit stack and just attach these things throughout the course of your day. Hey, after meal one, I'm going to take a 10 minute walk. When my kid gets home from school, I'm going to walk to the school instead and pick him up rather than this. Or, you know, when I get to the gym, I'm going to do a 10 minute walk as a warm up. And then between sets, instead of sitting on my phone and getting distracted, I'm going to go through, you know, I'm going to do laps around the gym. That's what I do personally. But from an adherence perspective, being in a high energy flux state not only allows you to incorporate movement in a more, uh, you know, laid back, relaxed way and then get the benefits of those, but it also allows you to eat more and maintain a higher calorie intake. So you're gonna have better diet adherence because you have more calories in the system. You're gonna have more accessibility to more food variety and flexibility. You're gonna be able to increase your micronutrient intake because now you have more food selection. You're not on this limited plan with this limited amount of calories. What a lot of people don't realize is a lot of people are in a calorie deficit, but they're also in a micronutrient deficit. They're not choosing their, their food selection. Their food quality is not where it should be. And when you only have 1500 calories to play with because you're trying to maintain this lean health, you know, this lean physique, you know, you are, you have to really play your card smart in terms of every, you have to get as many nutrients per calorie per bite as possible. And a lot of people don't think that, that well through a lot of coaches, they only give macro plans and they're not really thinking about the nutrient density, but increasing your calories is going to increase the ability for you to get more nutrients, have more variety, more colors, more fruits and vegetables, and really incorporate different food sources to increase, you know, uh, the vitamins, minerals, cofactors that your body needs to run all internal processes. And then also from an adherence perspective, you know, movement increases appetite regulation because, you know, it's going to allow you to be more sensitive to your satiety signals. And so you'll be more able to manage your hunger and regulate energy intake because you're not only going to be fuller because you're eating more, but because of the fact that you're moving more, which helps you be more in tune with your hunger signals. And then with that, you're going to be less susceptible to falling off your diet. Because a lot of people, what people struggle with most within dieting, especially post-diet, is that ravenous hunger. And that's why so many people rebound, gain a ton of fat post-diet. And we also see in research that there's a significant difference between someone's hunger and satiety levels when they're in a low flux state as compared to a high flux state. 
So there was, you know, a study by Paris et al., which was a crossover study, and they essentially put people in two states. They put them in a high flux state for four days or a low flux state for four days. They did a washout period, and then they had them cross over into the next one. And during the high flux state, they ate over 3,200 calories per day, and the low flux state, they ate 2,400 calories per day. Now, here's the thing. When we have studies, and Kate, I'm sure you've looked into literature, we never have 100% on anything. There's never like hundred um, percent in terms of subjective feedback or objective feedback. But in this, um, you know, in this study, you know, coincidentally, every single subject reported both less hunger and a greater sense of fullness in the high flux state. And they also saw an increase in the resting metabolic rate. So just by utilizing the high flux state and actually doing more exercise, they did, they did more walking specifically, they were able to both adhere to the diet better and also be more satisfied with what they were eating. And they were subjectively in a much better place mentally. So it wasn't only the physical benefits in both conditions, both low flux and high flux, they maintained their same body composition and body weight. They regulated inside the lab, but they experienced both and they were every, you know, 10 out of 10, or I forget how many were in the study, but every single individual in that study you know, essentially reported back that they preferred the high energy flux state. Mm, that, that's so interesting because so many people think that, oh, the more active you are, the the hungrier you're going to be because you're just burning through more calories, you know, but it doesn't necessarily work that way. So man, you got me pumped. I'm actually going to go eat a meal here real quick and go for a quick walk. So uh, yeah, yeah with, with that, man, um, last question for you, where can people find you, find your content, reach out to you, things like that. Absolutely. Guys, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at Brandon DeCruz underscore. Um, if you guys have any email or inquiries or any questions, um, feel free to reach out to me at um, or BeTacruzFitness at gmail.com. And please check out my podcast, the Chasing Clarity Health and Fitness Podcast. We drop a new uh, episode every Friday at noon Eastern Standard Time. So I, I would love to hear you guys over there. Couldn't rec- recommend that podcast more. It's it's fantastic. So Brandon, again, I really appreciate you coming on, man. That was a really good conversation. I'm excited to send it to clients and, and people I know to get them out and just eating more and moving more, right? Absolutely, man. Living a lifestyle of abundance, man. It was a pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. I'm looking forward to the next one. Thank you again for tuning in and listening. I really hope you guys enjoyed that episode. And if you did, take a screenshot, share it on your Instagram story, and tag me at Howell underscore fit, and leave the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions about coaching or need advice on anything training or nutrition related, shoot me an email at the email linked in the description, and I will talk to you guys soon.